The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. I am not so sure there are such things as non-responders. This idea that your genes predetermine which training you'll adapt to, and that's part of the zombie we're hunting. Our body doesn't respond to what happens to it. Our body and brain respond to what we estimate, forecast is going to happen next. Hello and welcome to The Real Science of Sport. I am Dr. Ross Tucker, and today we are going on a zombie hunt. I'll explain to you shortly exactly what a zombie means and is in the context of sports science and specifically coaching. But joining me on this hunt will be John Kiley, who is a senior lecturer in elite performance at the School of Sport and Health Sciences of the University of Central Lancashire. And I followed John for some years now on Twitter, and you can too. His handle is at simply sports size. That's two S's in the middle there. At simply sports size. And I've always been struck by his ability to weave theoretical sports science concepts into practical examples. He has an extensive career on the practical side of sports science with roles that have included head of strength and conditioning for UK athletics, lead strength and conditioning provider for the Athletics Association of Ireland, roles with the Paralympic Council, Irish Amateur Rowing Association, and various consultancies as a strength and conditioning coach for football teams, international rugby teams, and Olympic athletes, including Olympic medalists. And so he certainly has the practical background to talk about today's content. The way that this podcast originated is I saw a tweet by John about a month ago in which he shared an excerpt of a book chapter that he had just written. And in it, he introduced this concept of zombies. And it struck me as something that we could do a series on, in fact. We've already done a series on coaching. Uh, We've interviewed Neil Henderson. We've spoken a couple of times to Stuart Armstrong about various elements of coaching. And this is another one of those in which John and I will explore a dogma that needs to be challenged and broken down with respect to how we train ourselves and other athletes, those of us who are coaches, and what it needs to be replaced with. And so the hope is that as John and I discuss this, it will give you some lateral thoughts around what it is you might change, how it is you might view the success or the failure of your own coaching programs, your own training plans, and then develop some different ways of thinking about training in a way that unlocks potential that you may not have considered before. So let's discover exactly what zombies are and let's go and hunt some with John Kiley. Good morning, John. Thank you for joining us. It's really terrific to have you on. Looking forward to the discussion. Perhaps begin by telling us exactly where in the world you are as we're sitting here speaking to you. Hey, Ross. Uh, good to meet you. Thanks for the invitation. I am in a small village in uh, rural Ireland called Six Mile Bridge. Uh, it's about 10, 15 minutes from Shannon Airport. So, so yeah, so it's uh, well located, nice and quiet, where I spend uh, a where I have been spending a lot of time, obviously, given pandemic, but uh, yeah, it's where I live. And what's uh, what's been keeping you busy the last, say, three months, work-wise? Oh, well, um, I, uh, I work for uh, a university in the UK. We work with professional doctorates, conventional PhDs, but predominantly professional doctorates who are tend to be coaches out in practice, uh, who are looking at exploring innovation within the field but yet want to apply academic rigor to their ideas and innovations 
So it's the uh, same standard level as a conventional PhD, but a little more open to what you might include as interventions or outputs of that doctorate. So although I'm not working full-time in the field, I I guess it's the next best thing. I work with people who are embedded full-time in professional uh, sports, military, physical contexts. Very good. And one of the things you've obviously done recently is write this book chapter, which is the subject of today's podcast. Well, a part of that book chapter is um, maybe just very briefly give the book a punt. Yeah, well... Uh, it's the second edition of the book. Uh, the editors are two well-known uh, practitioners in the field, David Joyce, Dan Lunden. Uh, the first edition was very successful. Uh, I was lucky enough, they asked me to come in and contribute some, a chapter to the second edition. It gave me a good bit of flexibility. Um, and I tried to do something that was a bit different for a book chapter for a textbook. I wrote about stuff that I'd been thinking about for quite a while that you wouldn't have license to write about in a kind of peer review publication. Uh, but that was, I think, very, very important and meaningful to coaches and coaching practice. And yeah, they gave me my head to, to have a go and see if I could pull these desperate uh, observations and elements of evidence together to provide a coherent message. Yeah, so let's get straight into it, John, because um, I said in my introduction to the to the listeners earlier that we were going zombie hunting today, and so I need to define or identify the target of this hunt. So we, we need to identify what is a zombie, and I want to read from that that section of the book chapter that you've just alluded to and that you wrote. The subheading is why coaches should be zombie killers, and you write here Nobel Prize winning economist and New York Times columnist Paul Krugman describes dogmas that stubbornly refuse to die despite being refuted by a mountain of evidence as zombie ideas. So that's what our zombie is. It's a, it's a zombie idea, something that stubbornly refuses to die. And I want to continue reading John's words here, so bear with me. Zombie ideas should be dead, yet lurch along regardless, nibbling away at our brains, mindlessly oblivious to the damage they wreak. Zombie ideas roam our ideologies in marauding mobs, intolerant of doubt and innovation, bullying dissenting voices into submission. Zombie ideas don't die because they serve a purpose. They substantiate a belief or superficially solve a problem or indulge a bias. And so we allow them to lurk, overlooked and unmolested in the dark, ego-protected recesses of our personal philosophies. Zombie ideas flourish in realms where traditions and conventions and dogmas run deep and where clarifying science is shallow and superficial. Within coaching culture, there is one particularly influential zombie idea that is so deeply woven into the fabric of training law that despite clear evidence it should be laid to rest, persists. It survives perpetuated by segregated and siloed academic disciplines and propagated by coaching conventions, texts and educational curriculums. This is the zombie idea that, John, what is our zombie idea target for today? In a nutshell, the zombie idea that I'm writing about there relates to the embedded and largely unexamined belief that physical training conducted directly drives a proportional adaptation, physiological, biological adaptation to that training. So I think this is a zombie because, well, 
I don't think it's true. I don't think the evidence supports it or certainly substantial evidence contradicts it. But it's the basis of all of our coaching training theory. If I do this physical intervention, these are the, the metabolic or mechanical outcomes that I'll derive from it. And underneath that, there's kind of a, a host of other assumptions that are largely unquestioned. We believe that, okay, well, we can predict what will happen if we do this physical training. We can, we may, we believe we can predict how long it will take, uh, the magnitude, you know, if we want X amount of strength gain in six weeks, I know if we do this, we will get that by the time we come to the, this, the end of the six weeks, and then we can move on to the next training phase. And in a sense, I, I think that is like a foundation, a simplifying foundation belief of training theory. If we do this, we get this. So it, just just to take a step back so that we absolutely understand, because we, we shouldn't hunt this idea unless we know exactly what it is we're hunting. It's the idea that if I have an input, whether that is strength training, like you've just said, whether that is endurance work, whether that is intermittent uh, uh, high-intensity interval training, we will get, and I think the key is predictable and proportional outcomes as a consequence of that training. Is that correct? So it's the, it's the magnitude that's the issue, not necessarily the concept? Uh, yeah, well, it, it's the direction as well. Direction, magnitude, and uh, timing. So if you think of, for example, our conventional planning theory, uh, periodization, that's what we do. We break it down. We say, if we do this, we'll get this by the end of this phase, and then we'll be ready mm. to move into mm. uh, this type of training at the end of this phase. So if you like, it's a, it's a layered approach that is very, um, very sensible if you're dealing with a mechanical system, but the wheels totally come off the logic if we uh, look at it through the lens of, well, okay, we're a complex biological system rather than a mechanical system. So when I first read those words and even listening to you now, two thoughts come to mind. One of them is the issue of responder versus non-responder. Is that an accurate, if oversimplified uh, cliche capturing part of what you're talking about? Um, it de definitely is related. So we, like, we have this concept in our heads, culturally, responders, non-responders. Mm. I, I guess I am not so sure there are such things as non-responders. I believe there are probably high responders and low responders. But I think what the evidence suggests around that responsiveness is that it's not predictable. We can't say, well, it's because of this genetic profile or anything like that. And if, and again, this is supported by the evidence, if you take someone that you consider a very slow, low responder and change parameters mm. or come back again sometime in the future and introduce the same thing, you get different outcomes. So I guess what this says to me is that we have a kind of a cultural um, perspective on, on how physical training interacts with biology to give an adaptive outcome that promotes athletic ability. So obviously there's, you know, there's genetics there, there's early life experience, there's prior training uh, history, there's injury history, and then there's also short-term things like, well, we know sleep has an influence, we know nutrition has an influence. I guess the key point that I'm bringing out in this chapter is 
actually there's a whole raft of psycho-emotional influences mm. here that we don't think about that directly impact outcomes of training. Right. And these have been neglected in the responder non-responder type of debate. Right. And, and that, that responder non-responder has often been reduced to genetic variation. You know, you win. The, you either win the genetic lottery, and you're like my friend Richard, who, who can take three or six months off the bike, and within two weeks is is beating us all on the bike again. We've been training, or you lose the genetic lottery, and you're the rest of us. And the one study that I remember seeing, and I'm sure you're, you're aware of it, I think it was by Bouchard, where they they would they took a group mm. of 470 previously sedentary individuals, and they put them on a training program of a couple months. And at the end of that program, their main outcome was the change in VO2 max. So for the benefit of listeners, that's effectively a measure of your cardiovascular or aerobic capacity. And they, and they found, and I forget exactly what the figures were, but about 5% of those people had a response that was so small that you would consider it non-existent. And on the other end of the spectrum, 5% of them have this enormous response. The average is a 17% increase in VO2 max. And then what they did there was that they took these genetic terms, single nucleotide polymorphisms, and they associated those with performance. And that's the oversimplification where you say, you know, some people just have the genes and others don't. In your, in your book chapter, you cite a very interesting study. It's a randomized control trial out of Australia, I believe, where they've done twin studies that offer evidence against this genetic um, predisposition to trainability. Maybe just pick up on, on that study. I thought it was fascinating. Yeah, well, just one thing harking back to the Bouchard study there. There was a number of participants in that study who actually got worse. Their VO2 max outcomes were uh, decreased over the course of the study. So again, a total spanner in the works of what yeah. we think of as very logical training theory. Yeah, and that, was, relation- sorry, and that was the second part. Of, earlier I said there were two things that came to mind. That was the second part where I think they've shown some people adapt to high-intensity training but get worse on endurance, aerobic work, and vice versa. So I suppose that, that also links in. But I, I guess the theme is that it's this, um, this idea that your genes predetermine which training you'll adapt to, and, and that's, where we, that's, the, that's the zombie we're going to eventually – what's part of the zombie we're hunting. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So, so back to this Australian study. Sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, so um, what this study did was it took identical twins and it gave them uh, a strength program, an endurance program. Very simple. You know, uh, I'm not saying this is the last word in study design or anything like that, but it was a, it, our first, one of the, it's definitely the biggest study in this particular field. Long story short, the outcome are, is exact same genetics exact same environment growing up different training outcomes mm. very different training outcomes mm. um, and that does throw a spanner in the works in terms of our conventional beliefs that are we're inclined to say well everyone will respond a bit differently that's because of genetics right uh, but that's not the case and I think you know just extending that a little bit, we genetics on their own, I think, yes, there's obviously some cases where it's a you know one gun, one bullet, you know, cystic fibrosis. Yes, a gene, a one specific gene can have a massive effect. But in terms of the kind of complex um attributes that we look for in sports training and uh, in sports comp- uh, athleticism and we target in training, 
they're all very complex attributes. Mm. Now, and again, I think what you'd layer in on top of the genetics there is the concept of epigenetics and how prior experiences switch on program gene networks. And again, this is a very personal thing. And certainly, you know, your history, your set of beliefs, your set of um, anxieties, triggers, competencies, your interpretation of all that, that will influence ultimately which genes are used, which genes are not used. So for me, I think of genes as they're just they're like an expanded toolbox that nature has given us. It, we program early in life how we select what tools we use, how we put them together. But it's it, it kind of doesn't make sense to talk about genes without talking about environment, right. environmental interactions, history. But very importantly, and I'm I'm saying this for the the benefit of the pod, is we're not we're not sitting here saying that the genetic elements don't matter. That Australian sure. study does not wipe clean a slate where we know that genes do make an influence and or, or a difference and have an influence and your predisposition to success in sport, your trainability for we'll work on that word over the course of the next next half hour, are still to some degree influenced by genes but not in the simplistic way that it's often framed and communicated to us. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah. so just interestingly in that study, I thought one of the most fascinating things that, that they did find is, yes, there was, there was no the, – the relationship between your training adaptations to strength or endurance training weren't predicted by genes, but they did find that um, – and I'm reading again from the abstract, our findings indicate that individual responsiveness differs between modalities and low responders to one mode may be rescued by switching to an alternate mode. So in other words, if you didn't respond to stimulus A, you would have a response to stimulus B. Accurate? Yes, absolutely. And I think uh, and, uh, we've published with this with Craig Pickering in Sports Med before, and that was our conclusion as well, that it's not that you are a low responder, it's that hmm, maybe we need to change something about the context or the design or, you know, if you change the context, you will change the outcome. At least that's my um, reading of the literature. The context or the stimulus, because here's the dilemma, right? So I'm listening to this now. I'm a cyclist, a runner, a swimmer. I lift weights. Do I do I change the type of training I do or do I stick with the training that I'm doing but change the other, let's call them satellite or environmental context that, that obviously modulates how I respond to training? How do I know where to go first? Okay, uh, that is a great question. It's also, I think, I can't answer that question, but I can maybe add a bit of insight. So... What you're suggesting there is that there's a separation between the adaptive stimulus and the environment or the context or the atmosphere around which that stimulus is applied. But, and I guess this is preempting what we were going to talk about, the, the, the signal, the training signal and the, the atmosphere, the, tra- the atmosphere around training or the context around training they both shape that adapt- adaptive signal. Mm. So to answer your question, it's you do one or the other, or you do both. Now, if it's a, to bring this back to, you know, practical context, okay, if I am faced with a, 
a sluggish response. I'm coaching a squad uh, or designing training for a squad. We're monitoring on a regular basis. Some are clearly responding really rapidly. Some are very sluggish. What do I do? Mm. And I think there's and there's an expanded menu open to you. Some are some are psychological. Can I change this person's belief around this training? Can I uh, what's the word um, dampen some of their fears or anxieties around this type of training? Can I modulate something in their environment, like a you know reduce stress? Yes. Uh, give give them some stress strategy. Can I change the actual sig the actual training signal? Can I change that? So these are the kind of strategies that are open to us. And I guess a key point is, or for me is, in our conventional training literature, we don't talk about those strategies. It's like, well, here's what we can do different physically. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, I guess another example is an athlete's just finished the marathon season. Maybe they've done a couple of races and, and they're injured. And they say, well, I've done the same thing I did every year and it's always worked for me. And this time it hasn't necessarily worked. What you're suggesting is that they're looking at the wrong side of the equation or they're looking at it in too polarized a way and they should actually be looking more holistically at the things they've done around the training stimulus to either optimize it or mean that it's 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 too much causing overtraining or injury. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a sense, you never repeat seasons on season training because exactly. you're you're different you've changed mm. uh the training signal might be the same but the stimulus to adapt is different mm. it can't it can't possibly be the same unless you could you know run some virtual experiment where you f- freeze time but you know it, it's always different yes and and that that i think brings us on to in in the chapter you talk about a concept that I think underpins how and why you change. And that's that concept of predictive coding. And maybe you can just, I know it's a very dense concept and we could take this in any one of half a dozen, if not more directions. But if if we talk about adaptation to training and the environment, how does this concept of predictive coding fit with our discussion? Great. Um, Okay, it's a very hard question. I will do my best. I think if it's okay with you, what I'll also do is maybe provide a, a reference to a full text that you can put in the show notes if that's appropriate. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I mean, I know it's a massive question and we'll we'll deal with it piece by piece. Um, yeah, hack off, okay. hack off piece by piece of it. Let's go for it. Okay. Well, here here's my, my, my best attempt now. So <clears throat> uh, modern medicine. We have taken our example, as have all the health sciences, from medicine. How does medicine perceive things work, that that illness happens, that disease happens, that injury happens? And historically, that was what's normally called the biomedical model. Now, biomedical model is a very kind of fluffy, poorly defined concept, but it's basically, you know, it harks back a couple of hundred years that brain and body are effectively separate separate entities. The brain directs the body. The body is purely the brain's meaty muscular servant. Um, And in the biomedical model, what medical uh, belief was, was that if there's damage, there's pain. Uh, If there's a pathogen, there's going to be some type of disease factors. But it's a you know single bullet uh, and a single shot type thing. It's 
a direct causal link. Now, you know, in the in the 1977, famously, this guy called George Engel, based on work he'd done over the preceding 20 years, came up with this biopsychosocial model, which is saying, well, actually, the biomedical model discounts the brain, emotions, beliefs, thoughts, expectations, assumptions, yada, yada, yada. But it shouldn't because they clearly impact the time courses and traje trajectories of illness, injury, etc. But the bio, but the biopsychosocial model, even though it's often referenced, it's really an educational thing. It was designed to educate doctors and psychiatrists about these influences are important. But it's one of these things that it describes how social environment, psychological context, and physiology interact in a very, very broad, hand-wavy way. It doesn't tell you what to do. It doesn't give you any precise um, guidance. Now, that's where we were up until, I guess, this millennium. Okay, um, so, so let me just, uh, let me just yeah. go back. The, the biomedical model, let's talk about it, how mm. that's applied to training. So bio the biomedical model tells me that if I want to lose fat and enhance my aerobic capacity, that I have to train at certain intensities because it's going to trigger mitochondrial biogenesis, capillary proliferation, uh, alveolar recruitment, increased sweat capacity, all these bodily functions that over the course of two months will make me a better endurance athlete. That, is that a biomedical a, application? That is, a, that is a very good example. Now, another example, and, and maybe where the most research is done, uh, and I know a lot of physios, PTs, uh, athletic trainers listen to this, is uh, in relation to injury. So biomedical model, if there's pain, there must be some structural damage. And uh, the opposite of that, if there's a report of pain, but there isn't damage, then it's all in the athlete's head right. type, type logic. Yeah. And this may sound kind of archaic, but this is still very, very pervasive in elite sports. You know, someone gets injured, we get a scan, I can't see anything. You know, they're a bit sensitive, they're a bit anxious, These, this type of logic to explain away the lack of, a, of, of an empirical finding, finding on scan. Predictive coding is a concept that emerged in kind of the neuroscience, uh, the neurosciences in uh, late 19th or 20th century. And just the, the headline is, our body doesn't respond to what happens to it. Our body and brain respond to what we estimate forecast is going to happen next right now it's not like this is totally new you know people have been writing about the power of expectation for a long time uh, for, for 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 centuries but it had never been pulled together in a conceptual framework uh, and it has been over the past two decades it has been, and I, I, I think I mentioned this in the chapter, uh, one of the quotes is, uh, as important to the brain sciences as evolution is to biology. Now, that's quite a, that's quite a startling and impressive uh, claim, as important as evolution is to biology. So what are the implications? So in a nutshell, Predictive processing, predictive coding, predictive regulation, whichever way you want to, whatever you want to call it, 
suggests that it's not necessarily what happens that regulates our bodily resources. It is our prediction of what's going to happen next. Yeah. And these predictions are short term. If I'm running a clear example, if I'm going to put my foot down, I'm predicting the 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 quality of the surface, the hardness of the surface, what angle I need to have my foot at, et cetera, what tension I need to have, mm. et cetera, et cetera. But it's also been in health, it is it you are your estimation, your forecast of how your health is likely to evolve influences how your health develops yeah so, so think- sorry sorry i just wanted to come back to something before we go into that because we, we, that's where we're heading um the predictive thing the moment i make a prediction and i test my prediction it becomes a memory and that memory then informs the future prediction so we're constantly learning correct so mm-hmm. i predicted that the land the ground will be firm turned out i was wrong it's actually soft sand next time i land i won't be surprised by it and that's a basic example. But when I read this and even listening to you now, it just strikes me as so um, eerily reminiscent of the whole concept of anticipatory regulation, what people may have heard about as a central governor in sport. And to just to read from your uh, text, it says here, we assimilate all these informational cues and clues. And against the context of our perception of present conditions, we forecast what's likely to happen next. The lessons of the past integrate with interpretations of the present and a prediction emerges. And so for the listeners, for instance, the, the whole anticipatory regulation central governor concept was, for instance, I don't slow down in the heat because I'm hot. I slow down so that I don't get hot. And I've made a calculation, a prediction, based on temperature, my body's temperature, the environment's temperature, prior experience, and the circumstances of the event to say, if I don't slow down, I'm going to hit dangerously hypothermic levels. Therefore, I slow down to regulate. That's That seems to me to be a really obvious example listeners might relate to, but it's more pervasive, and that's, I think, where you were going next. Maybe your comments on the whole anticipatory regulation in sport thing. No, absolutely. And as I said, uh, the the recent formulation of, of predictive processing, it ties together all of those observations. Um, and maybe I'll give you two examples from, from kind of sport that, that might help tie them together. But absolutely, in relation to central governor, yes, I agree with everything you've said. I'd probably add a little tweak on top, though. It's not what is happening to you. It's your interpretation of what's happening to you. That's where predictive code or predictive processing, that, that's what that theory asserts. Mm. It is your, you build a model. Over, over the course of a lifetime, influenced by genes, early life experience, history, significant others, yada, yada, yada. You build a model of here's how the world works or here's how this particular phenomenon works. Then you, you sample information in the world. Uh, it's incomplete. There's a degree of uncertainty there. Uh, but, but you have to make a judgment on what's going to happen next. Then you make that judgment. That's the first thing. But it's a belief. The first thing is a belief. Mm. It's not reality. It is what has been called and what's starting to be called more and more a controlled hallucination. Your brain generates a picture of reality that is very functional, but it leaves out a lot. Now, the second part of this that is really important is then, and again, this was included in the central governor model, was that 
your body starts to change, starts to adapt in preparation. And this is something that is left out of the biomedical model. In the biomedical model, there is no, something happens, you respond. Mm, cause and effect, Tra- yeah. Tra- training happens, training adaptation uh, is the outcome. What predictive coding, predictive processing would be suggesting is, here's my beliefs around training. Here's me sampling the environment, sampling coaching behaviors, seeing what others in the group, how they're reacting. I'm doing all of that. I'm making an internal calculation using my internal model to say, this is good for me. This is bad for me. This is risky. There's a degree of uncertainty. I'm confident. I'm not confident. All of these things are combined. And then brain and body make a value judgment on how should I respond to this? It's a big risk. I, I, I really feel uncertain. I think my knee is going to hurt. Okay, I'm going to hold back resources. Training outcome, I won't, you won't adapt as much. If you're anxious about training, you will not adapt as well as if you're confident and trusting and have faith in what you're doing. Okay, so here's a, here's a quote yeah. for you. I want to pick up on those exact words. If you have faith in what you're doing, Franz Stamfel was the coach of Roger Bannister when he broke the sub mile. I'm sure you know what's coming. Sure. Uh, there's a quote, and I remember this quote because Professor Tim Noakes, who supervised my PhD, used to give this when he lectured on the central governor. And I'm going to read it to you. Training is principally an act of faith. The athlete must believe in its efficacy. He must believe that through training he will become fitter and stronger, that by constant repetition of the same movements he will become more skillful and his muscles more relaxed. Fran Stamfel was obviously onto this zombie. Okay, so let me, let, let me come back at that a little bit. So, you know, the story, obviously, with Bannister, it was very, you know, it was a training group at, at Cambridge, I think. They went out their lunch times. They did pretty hard sessions. He was nearly breaking four minutes, but he wasn't quite breaking it. They brought in Stamfield, I think, more as a consultant at the time. What Stamfield did was put order on their training. You know, my interpretation and, and mm. reading of that, he put structure. I would think that that... Uh, engendered belief, promoted belief. Well, we, we got this guy in from, I think he was Austrian perhaps. Yes. Um, we, we, we got this guy in. Uh, he's really helped us with more structure. All of those things are, okay, if he's affecting Roger Bannister's belief, that's fantastic. And that might be, what ha- you know, a stimulus to enhance adaptation, break the four-minute mile. Obviously, and you know what happened next, dominoes, Hey, he broke four minutes. Yeah. I can break four minutes and bam, 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 bam. Right. And in fairness, though, I think there were a lot of other things going on at the time. World War II sure. took athletes out of the pool. Landy didn't have access to facilities and pace setters the way Bannister did. So I think there's a lot to that. And I think that story has been told uh, a bit one-dimensionally in the past. But but I guess the, the point yeah. I was trying to make with the quote is that you, you spoke about the, there has to be a degree of belief, uh, faith that it's going to work and that that the mindset changes the way that the physiology responds to the stimulus, coming back to this predictive coding element. Yeah, um, I think possibly, and if you know if it's okay, I think it might be worth thinking about looking at this phenomenon through the lens of placebo and nocebo. Yeah, yeah, that's effects. fascinating, fascinating. So let's go there. Okay, so conventionally, I guess in the back of our heads as, as coaches or SNCs or sports scientists or physios, we have this kind of, okay, well, there's this phenomenon called placebo. 
Now, the biomedical model cannot explain placebo. Right. You cannot explain why your thoughts influence your outcomes, your physiological outcomes. Uh, predictive coding. No, sorry. Biopsychosocial model doesn't really say anything about it. It waves its hands in the air a little bit, but it doesn't actually give you a mechanism through which you can improve. Uh, or through which placebo can enhance outcomes. Predictive processing does. It's like, okay, you are taking, you are sampling all nature of signals. Your brain is interpreting all those signals against the context of its previously shaped model, uh, history, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and it is making a prediction of what will happen. If I give you a placebo, what's happening? You're changing your prediction because you feel I've learned something here that's relevant. Uh, I, I incorporate that into my model. That model now changes my assertions, my expectations, my beliefs. Okay, now I can afford, it moves the needle. I can afford to regulate more resources to this. So for example- I don't need to worry about this. For example, I mean, the, the most amusing one I ever saw was you'd give someone headache tablets. You know, it was intended and known to treat headaches and tell them that a potential side effect is a headache and they'll get headaches. Yeah, and actually, you know, recent research is suggesting in relation to nocebo effects, yeah. which, you know, D D right. twin, yeah. uh, they are driven, and the estimate is ridiculously broad, between 40 and 100% of side treatment side effects are driven by nocebo effects, yeah. are driven by your interpretation of what might go wrong. So, and again, once you get into placebo, we're all familiar with the pill, you know, you, you, you give the pill and you get a little faster. Uh, I think with Chris Beattie, 2007, uh, did some uh, experiments with sprinters. This will make you faster, they take it, they get a little bit faster. This will make you slower, they take it, it gets a little bit slower. But I guess there's two things with placebo. Well, let me confine it to one. One is, uh, in 2010, there was an experiment done on pain, where most placebo research lives. And it was with chronic irritable bowel syndrome, which is really, really painful for people. Uh, got a couple of hundred of them, brought them in, exact same medical office, exact same practitioner. And he said, here's your prescription. And it's clearly marked placebo. He said, these are placebo. They are made of sugar pills. They are sugar pills. There is no active ingredient. However, uh, placebos have been found in lots and lots of trials to, in, to reduce pain experience. So it was called a, an open-label placebo or an honest placebo. Mm. Give that, give, give that to the, the people who are in pain and who obviously have been around the shops in terms of going to different... If, you, if you're signing up for a study, you've already tried everything it's else. Last resort, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah their reductions in pain were as much as people who were given uh, what they thought or sorry were given the standard of care in terms of whatever opioid they, they they had at the time so placebos aren't this kind of little oddity they're a fundamental part of how we operate how brain and body operate and they're not they're they're not nothing we we often you know talk about you know uh what's it called, small gains, marginal gains. Placebos give you massive gains, mm. at least in, in the experiments, you know, in which they're done. Obviously, it might be different with, you know, highly professional elite athletes. 
But why do placebos work? Placebos work because they change your prediction. Mm. Well, why do they change your prediction? Because you've been given new information. Is the placebo a pill? No, it's not. Placebo is the context. Placebo is, I'm sitting in an office with, 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 with Ross Tucker, and Ross is saying to me, I think this type of training will help you because we've used it in with these people, and it has worked. It, it, it marries up with your strengths and weaknesses. You haven't done a lot of it in the past. You know, you provide a convincing rationale based in reality of why you feel this training intervention will help. And what that is doing is harnessing what you can call the placebo effect, but really it's not the placebo effect. It's just a facet of this. I am changing predictions. Do you think I'm changing us? Do you think that knowledge about the placebo effect and, and the more someone discusses it and, and recognizes that it's and I don't want to say only part of the context because now I'm diminishing it again, which is not, I'm not intending to do that. My question is, do you think knowledge diminishes the effect of the placebo effect in a person? So again, I'm mindful of the athlete now listening to this and saying, okay, so I'm taking from this that I really have to go out and believe that the thing that I'm doing is going to work. But now I know that it's only because I believe. Does that undermine the effect of the belief? <laughs> Uh, if you were to do it like that, yes. But I guess what we're talking about here is, so for example, me giving you a convincing placebo, a big dramatic intervention as a placebo, that would help you in the very short term. Mm. But you as an athlete would quickly lose faith in me because right. it's like, he's just tricking me. It's all you know, smoke and mirrors. Right. So what I think it needs to be is, um, you know, it's kind of a bone deep belief. How do you get those bone deep, deep beliefs? Well, they don't come easy, but it's like the coach showing to the athlete that he that he or she cares, that they have the athlete's best interest in heart, that they are serious about their role in uh, helping the athlete achieve their ambitions, that they're they're mindful of the athlete's perspectives. So, for example, I think engaging with the athlete, getting the athlete engaged in form in program formulation and design critically important, taking athlete feedback, critically important. So again, if we go back to something I mentioned earlier, if we look at how can I enhance the environment? How can I enhance the group dynamics? There's a training group. Uh, you know, everyone out there will know that sometimes group dynamics are great, sometimes they're not. I guess what we're adding in this conversation is group dynamics influence are one of the key influences on training adaptation. So if you're going to spend all your time designing uh, this type of training and discussing this technical model, et cetera, et cetera, you also need to be thinking about, okay, what are the strengths and weaknesses of our training dynamic, of our environment, of my presentation as a coach, of my communication skills as a coach? Um, and I think it's, it's the opposite of our old idea of planning is the coach sitting in a room by themselves with a big Excel sheet. That's not planning. Well, there was a, there was a quote. I don't know if you saw it. There was an article came out two weeks ago, a group of athletes from Oregon raised an objection. They were being sent almost weekly for body composition assessments. And the coach in response to this accusation said that basically a mathematician could be a good coach because it's really just about analysis of numbers. And I just, I shudder to think, that there are coaches out there who think that that's what coaching boils down to is is Excel spreadsheets and mathematical formulas. It's it's a it's a dreadful way to think about coaching. It is dreadful, but if you were a strict 
biomedical rationale. That's, that's where your value lies, yeah. Yes, it would. And, and I guess here's where it becomes important on the ground. Uh, I've been exposed to a lot of coaching courses. I work with coaches all the time. I work with you know professional organizations, clubs, squads all the time. That that biomedical belief, that zombie idea where you know that we started out with, that's embedded. Mm. It's embedded. It's embedded, um, and you can see why we would hang on to it. It's oh, functional. Oh, we, yeah. We've built all our theories on it. Absolutely. I, even <laughs> even this conversation as a physiologist makes me nervous because. Because the, the the biomedical model is is reassuring to me because it's cause and effect and it gives me control and I can measure exactly I can anticipate if I do A I'll get B and I think what you're talking here is a is a less controllable more diffuse concept and the physiologist in me gets uh, anxious that I'm walking on thin ice where the moment you introduce these these concepts so I can I totally understand it I mean and don't get me wrong listeners I buy into this I I did a PhD on this anticipatory regulation and I was quite comfortable with the uncertainty of predictive performance but uh, but I, I do I do understand why there are coaches who think this way yeah and well it's culturally embedded mm. and that makes it and it's uninvestigated like how many of us have thought about the biomedical model as the platform for all of our ideas well, until someone raises it well how do you how do you investigate the biosocial model you you've, you've cited a couple of studies already in this conversation in your in your book chapter you describe one study I'd seen before where hotel cleaners were basically given two different sets of information and it changed their physiological health status but and maybe maybe talk about that shortly, but my it, it leads me to my question is how do we in science measure this this stuff because we're talking about mindset and belief and faith and scientists reject that because they're taught to. Okay, so I, I guess the only context I've really thought about this hard in is in relation to training and training science, mm. um, and. I think both inter-individual variability, so how you and me will differ, and intra-individual variability, how I will differ now and then in six weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're so extensive. And we're basing it all on a science of, you know, p-values and averages and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it is very hard. I think what, what we can do is, I don't think there's anything wrong with the science we've done. But we can't, uh, we can't overinterpret it. It's giving us very, very broad clues, very broad clues. When we're working with individual athletes or squads, I think those it's good to know the science, but it's it's imperative that we also realise the problems. Now, what it does is it puts you as a coach in a very uncertain environment. Mm. You do not know what is going to work. You can have a comforting belief, oh, I know it's going to work because I did it before with this, these folks or these papers all said this. But that is absolutely removed from reality. So it's a question. Do you want to be comfortable uh, or do you want to be really, really effective? So what is... Now, if, so, sorry, go okay. on. No, no, go on, go on. Okay, so, so if you want to be really, really effective, then it is time for, for us to kind of to shift how we're thinking about this. And it's all, okay, well, there isn't any kind of mythological best training design or best training timeframes. 
Uh, I don't know how someone will respond if I'm being perfectly honest. But what I can do is I can plan, meticulously plan a jumping in point. Mm. I can put my monitoring strategies, my debriefing strategies, my athlete feedback, my athlete education strategies. I can wrap them around. And I think the way forward is we design uh, training programs that aren't complicated, but that learn, that are learn as they go. They're mm. iterative. They, they're generative models in a way. So we start here. I'm going to take some feedback. We're going to experiment with this and that. And then we'll get into a routine. And I've done this. I've been using this with athletes for a few years. And the athlete doesn't know any different, really. You know, uh, there's education factored in there. There's feedback and feedforward information exchange. There's observation. But training programs can pretty rapidly evolve into something that isn't, oh, my God, every training session, I don't know what to do. Mm. I think there's that lack of knowledge at the start, but pretty soon you can get rid of that by putting processes in place to push information that enable training modulation. Right. And I was I was going to say the word I, I would have used is you must be agile in your in Sure, your absolutely. It's, it's that agility to... To, to ask the right question and then very quickly find the correct answer and then act on that answer to make the necessary change. I guess what I, what I want to ask is you've spoken a lot about the athlete coach. I would suspect most people listening to this don't have coaches. So they coach themselves. They are only athlete coaches. <laughs> or they aren't even interested in performance. Maybe they're interested in the health benefits of exercise because they've heard and read somewhere that cholesterol, blood pressure, diabetes, every disease known to man is improved by exercise. And so mm. they want to now ask the question, am I optimizing my outcomes based on what we've spoken about? What What is that person to do? Okay. Um, that's okay. That's interesting for me because my, my brain is in performance for, sure. so, you know, yeah. so, but but the, the principle, I suppose, the principles yeah, are, are, are cross the boundaries between performance and health, and even enjoyment of exercise. So, so hopefully, we can we can give people some of those principles. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think the principles are exactly the same. So, I think that uh, you need to think about why you're doing what you're doing. You need to pick what makes the most sense to you, which sounds like it's it's obvious. I would think. You need to make observations. How do I feel? Perhaps do simple strategies like a training diary, things that reinforce the fact to you, well, I am actually training and I've been training pretty regularly and it will give you information. Uh, my 1K, 5K walking time or running time has improved slightly. Maybe I'll up it a little bit. But it's all about acting like a brain does and should in an evolutionary context. Here I am starting. I don't have a lot of knowledge. How can I learn? I can sample the environment myself. How do I feel? I can uh, learn the very, very basics. I don't think you'd need to know a lot about training theory. And then the last thing I would say would be for a non-athlete, for athletes or non-athletes, the biggest cause of problems is uh, unexpected jumps. 
big deviations. Here's what I'm used to, boom, I'm going to do something I'm not used to now. And that's where most injuries, et cetera, et cetera, come mm. from. So it would be gradual, progressive change. So a lot of boring stuff, but layering on, how do I feel about this training session? Yeah. If I am stressed out before half an hour before doing it, this is not the right session for me. How can I make it different? Or how can I make the experience different? Can I build some fun into it, for example? Can I get some social validation by uh, sharing it on you know, social media with other like-minded people or join a training group? Anything that uh, increases enjoyment, uh, you know, just gets you more active and drives you to learn something more about yourself. Mm. All of that is critical information in designing a program that works for you it's interesting to me that that you and i know you'd, you'd value this stuff but i think it shows the 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 zombie killer approach that we've got here is that none of that involved the use of data and measurement and so on to make decisions because it seems to me that there'd be a trap here where the more technology develops the more it's likely to reinforce that biomedical model if used by the wrong person with the wrong mindset Absolutely. And yeah. I think we've seen this in pro sport in terms mm. of GPS. Yeah. And we've seen it in individual fitness in terms of fitness trackers. But here's the thing. It's all about the interpretation you put on the yeah. information. Yeah. It's not the information. Technology is neutral. It can be good. It can be bad. Mm. It's how we use it and how much emphasis we place on what is happening. So if you're going to get stressed every time, your runtime is down from, you know, it drops below mm. an average. That's a problem. You need to reboot your expectations. Go, well, you know, I'll have good days. I'll have bad days. Uh, things will happen. A lot of times there won't be an explanation. I'm more interested in long-term trends rather than, you know, yeah. sudden deviations. And the, and the context, it's, in, it's provided by things that are not always measurable. How do I feel? I suppose the moment you ask that, you're measuring it to some degree. But you mentioned earlier what I think is quite important. Am I anxious about the training I'm about to do? Because you shouldn't be anxious more than once in a while. <laughs> Maybe occasionally you invite a bit of anxiety when you know you're training hard. But, but I think that's absolutely true. That that should resonate with a lot of people listening to this. Is am I, am I, is my mind making this exercise experience negative? And if it is, then I need to change that. Absolutely, the exact. You know, we've always looked at changing training variables, but there's a whole set of other variables open to change. Mm. You mentioned the word mindset. Um, and I think that mindset is a really clarifying way of looking at this. If we interpret mindset as your set of beliefs around a specific phenomenon in the world, like people would have heard mindset, grow mindset, fixed mindset. To me, they're really fussy or fuzzy, fluffy definitions. I think a more contemporary view of mindset is you have a mindset, a set of beliefs, assertions, confidences, anxieties around it, you know, all the different phenomena that overlap in your life. If you are the type that I, you force yourself to train, but you do not enjoy it and you get anxious before it, what is that doing? Bringing it back to predictive processing. You have a negative prediction of how what you're going to feel. Mm. What does your body do in preparation? It gets your body, your body and brain get ready for that experience it gets ready for that experience by essentially making that experience happen it's a self-fulfilling generative loop yeah so the first thing to do is change your mindset mm. how do i do that uh 
okay, well, I, I need to maybe just uh, kind of forensically say, well, what? why am I going for a run? You know, it hurts my knee. It does this. I don't like it. Is there something else I can do? Mm. Something that I have faith in, something that I believe in. The last thing I'd say in answer to your question then is a lot of this is just reframing. It's not throwing everything out and reinventing the wheel. It's like you and me realizing that our approach, our attitude, our beliefs might be the problem. And then how can we change those beliefs? Mm. And even just knowing that, well, actually, fitness isn't a physical thing. It's a psycho-emotional, physiological, you know, every neurological. It's a whole set of contributing factors all flowing into each other that give you this thing that we very broadly summarize as fitness or, um, yeah, yeah, yeah and it's, athleticism. It's so fascinating. And I mean, I alluded earlier to a hotel worker study. Basically, they go to a group of hotel workers and they split them in two, two groups. And to one group, they say, and, and by the way, none of these hotel workers are what you would call fit. They are sedentary and they've got the health markers of an unfit, inactive person. And they tell one half of them that the, that the cleaning work that they do and their daily activities is sufficient to improve their health. And the other half, they say it's insufficient. And sure enough, after three months, the group that's been told that they're doing enough actually shows improvements in those health markers. <laughs> so so you get these, and, and, and add to it if you'd like to, but it's my, my interpretation of that is that that belief that what I'm doing is sufficient is enough to actually change the physiology. It's not only psychological or belief. No, absolutely. You, and that's the thing. And it kind of sounds, it sounds obvious when we talk about it, but if we look at training theory, it doesn't acknowledge mm. it. Your, your prediction of what is likely, what you're likely to feel in the future, experience in the future, creates that Right. Yeah, and it's got. You a, know, it sets the background, the bio, it sets the neurochemical backdrop mm. on which everything else is, is is imposed. Right, and then it's got a physiological outcome, a measurable physiological outcome, which is the is the best thing of all. And maybe I'm, maybe to some degree, I'm showing my bias to constantly bring it back to physiology. But I also remember once debating someone in Amsterdam at a, at a conference, and and they called the session "Mind Over Matter." And and it's it's just it's so annoying because why would you separate these two things yeah. and make it sound like there's one element that's mind? It's this, it's a shadowy, unknowable, unholdable element, and the other one's matter, something I can hold in my hand. And in actual fact, these things should not be viewed as separate. That's the point. That's exactly the point, and that's the kind of um, you know Descartes problem. Mm. Mind versus mind, yeah, and the body is the meaty servant, right? And the yeah. mind directs the body, and yeah. yeah. But here's the thing, and it brings us back around to where you come in with the zombie belief. This is a zombie belief that is wreaking damage, confusion, inefficiency in terms of both science and coach education and athlete education. So yeah, I think it's a problem, and I think it's worthwhile highlighting it. I guess it must take a lot of practice, though, when something's so ingrained. I mean, I, I early on confessed at my own unease, despite the fact that I've almost studied it as a, in a field. But it's it's still it's still difficult to let go of. So I suppose anyone listening to this has to accept that it's it's going to take you quite a while to to break free of that cause and effect. A leads to B simple model. Yeah, I find a certain freedom in it. 
for some reason. What and what is that? What does that freedom feel like to you? I mean, what is your what is your zombie free world in this respect that people can aspire to? Well, again, my bias is conditioning athletes, uh, predominantly athletes that are really at the wrong end of their career and they've been like lots and lots of accumulated miles, been through the ringer in terms of injury, and it's squeezing out another major competition like that. If if there's a speciality, then that's it. And and I think this gives us a lot more dials to tweak, a lot more buttons to push to say, well, how much of this is driven by your negative beliefs and all that kind of mm. misinformation you've received in your career. And I, I've sat in meetings, you know, at international level, physios, docs, you look at a scan, the player is there and it's like, oh gosh, you know, that looks bad. Mm. What is that? <laughs> you know, you're effectively implanting the biggest nocebo effect you could in a player's head. Yeah. Uh, and I think people here in nocebo, placebo, and they think of um, deception and lying and being dishonest. Yeah. It doesn't have to be like that. In fact, it is just, you know what? That doesn't look great there, but it's clear that what we're seeing in the scan is not necessarily related to the amount of pain you feel. Mm other way around for people and this is a this is a problem that I've come across a number of times again international level uh, medical staff uh, there's nothing wrong with him we have the scan results and the player go my knee is really sore mm. there's a no 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 there's nothing wrong with that you know so yeah I, I think that this type of approach will inevitably it's permeated all the other kind of health scientists sciences and is starting to I think we're just maybe slow adopters in this context, but I think we will. The other thing I would say, and this is just closing a loop with, you mentioned Franz Stamfel. Stamfel is often um, contrasted with Percy Ceruti, uh, who was uh, Australian, I think. Yeah, yeah he was Australian yeah. coach. Yeah. Her, Herb Elliott was his shining light. Mm. So where Stanfield is characterized as meticulous, mechanical, you know, in the sense that this is the training, this is the times we need to hit. So Rudy was much more about looking into the person's eyes, uh, asking them questions, a lot more about education, a lot more about trying to lead by example, even though through a modern lens, you know, he was a little bit crazy in a, in a lot of uh, behaviors, but trying to inspire the athletes. And we're obviously only getting snapshots of what they were really like as coaches from reading the histories, but maybe somewhere in between there's the build the emotional bond, mm. show the athlete that you're on their side, that you care about this. Um, really not being dishonest in any way, but you have a positive orientation. And stamp and uh, Stamfel then, Okay, but there's a degree of meticulous you need. That doesn't excuse you from having to do due diligence on your training prescription and your, your monitoring and your technical. It's not one or the other. It's one of these fusions. It's like nature nurture. Mm. You know, it's it. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah it, people love to say it's 50 50, 80 20. Well, of course, it's 100 100. That's how it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a these exactly. issues are, yeah, these are issues where 100 plus 100 equals 100. Not, it, it, they, they don't add and sum the way that we need it in our linear minds. It's, it's, it's always that way. Well, I guess 
just bringing it back to the, the, the science element, you know, I started out thinking about this purely from a practical coaching perspective. Um, and I think the concept of mindsets could be really important from, from a, a cold, practical coaching perspective or for an individual athlete perspective. Um, yeah. Okay. I lost the point. I was. I, I was. <laughs> I, I was going to make. But yeah. Well, let me let me make one, and then and then in almost tear us towards closing to this zombie-free world. Um, we're not saying here that people should just tell themselves that they can think them. Almost you would use the word earlier, deceptive. We're not advocating here for some kind of self-deception, some kind of airy fairy. I believe I'm going to get better, and therefore I am. We're we're arguing for knowledge. Uh, seeking inputs from other people i think that's so important whether it's training partners or whether it's people who will advise you and tell you things about your training uh and then it is a commitment to being disciplined within it but agile enough to listen that's what we're saying is the formula here for people to be zombie killers in their own training yeah um and just to decomplicate it a little more you're not saying that physical training isn't important but you know, it's mm. totally entwined, mutually modulated with all those factors you mentioned. Yeah. And your planning should reflect that. Yeah, holistically. Yeah. Your GPS scores, do they matter more than how you felt about that, whether you enjoyed it? Right. How you felt the next morning? No, they don't. Mm. Potentially less. Um yeah, and again, I think if if you'll indulge my kind of coaching bias, I think this. There's, this, there's kind of three pillars here for me. There's, as a coach, there's, there's communications and clarity of communication and positive orientation, but without any dishonesty. The athlete has to trust you. Yeah. Has to know, has to be able to look in your eyes and know this coach cares. Right. And, and cheerleading um, is effective only for a short time. You mentioned that earlier. So you can't uh, yeah, just... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and then and I think this is a phenomenon that underpins quite a lot of young coaches going to a famous, or sorry, young athletes going to a famous coach, getting some success and then falling off. It's mm. the realization sometimes that, okay, when I pull back the screen, the Wizard of Oz isn't necessarily uh, what I thought. Yeah. Um, I think then there's, design, there's a design element, how I design my training environment, my interaction, who, who are my training group? Who are the significant others in my training experience? I think for coaches, there's something about delivery, uh, as we've mentioned, and there are some. There is some science, uh, a little bit lightweight, but coming out about even things like coach facial expressions change performance. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the last one then is, again, is we need to educate athletes about training programs. I've again been around the block in terms of uh, competitive sports and. Sometimes you'll see experienced athletes being treated like kids. There's the training program. There's what you do. Whereas my kind of approach or belief would be, what we need to do is when we get an athlete and they're young, 18, 19, 20, we kind of give them little packets of education. So they're not making decisions, but you're educating them. And then gradually over time, you can farm out more responsibility because ultimately at the end, what you want is, they're kind of driving their program. They're responsible. They have autonomy. Mm. Um, and again, if you look at coming out with the medical research, what are the recommendations about amplifying placebo, 
mitigating nocebo, it's give them information, let them make their own decisions, give them some autonomy, inform them that how you feel about this is important. So if you feel bad, we need to talk and we need to tweak. Mm, absolutely. So those are your weapons. You have weapons, you have ammunition, and we've hopefully identified the zombie. And, and hopefully that gives those of you listening, whether you're a coach or self-coached athlete or a fitness enthusiast, exercise and health, doesn't matter. Hopefully we've empowered you to go out and kill the zombies and achieve whatever it is you want from exercise. So thanks very much, John, for your time. And thanks very much, as always, for listening. We'll speak to you all next time. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.